Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all, and good morning to those of you, or whatever time you're watching, if you're watching on demand uh, online. Um, I'm going to put a QR code up here if you want to point your camera at it or write that in. My outline in the sermon application guide is all wrong. I changed everything, so not everything. The beginning is the beginning is pretty much tracking, but then everything else changes. So if you want to get all the slides, because I usually like to include all that information in the in the outline, um, you can you can go there. All right, so we're in a series called the Fight. We're in the last week of the series. It's been a five-week series where we've been uh, kind of started with and really been focusing a lot on Matthew chapter four, where the temptation of Jesus, uh, where the Spirit. Uh, leads him into the wilderness for a time of testing. And so what kind of a fight are we talking about in this series just to kind of uh, bring us back to the subject? Um, week one, John Mark Homer in his book, Live No Lies, uh, starts out towards the beginning talking about how his life on paper is really, really good. I mean, it, you know, if you were, he describes it and as he describes what his life is like, he really doesn't have anything to worry about or to be concerned about, really, at least at that point in his life. But he asks the question, he says, why do I feel so tired and worn down, not in body, but in mind? Why do I feel so battered and bruised? Why does every day feel like a battle just to stay faithful, to keep following Jesus? Here's an idea, maybe because it is. <laughs> it is a fight. That's the fight that we're talking about in a nutshell throughout this series. The series has been about the fight to stay faithful in following Jesus. The fight to stay faithful in following Jesus. It's a battle. It's a, it's a monumental struggle to love deeply and to serve others and God joyfully and sacrificially. It's a struggle to trust God fully so much so that we begin to experience peace even in the midst of some of our most difficult times and our anxieties. It's hard to be consistently kind and compassionate and gentle and patient. All those virtues and fruit of the Spirit are what faithfulness looks like. Do you struggle to, to be patient and kind and compassionate? When we have power or influence or wealth, it's difficult to use it for the sake of those who don't have power and influence or wealth instead of just using it on ourselves. We experience a war in our souls when we try to genuinely trust God with our bodies and with our sexual desires. And we struggle to seek God's priorities first. Everywhere we go, go into our workplaces to seek God's kingdom. Make that his, our priority. Go into our schools, experience and put our focus on God's kingdom and prioritizing his rule. Staying faithful in following Jesus is a fight. It's a fight for everyone. God himself entered the struggle. He entered the fight in a very unique way in Jesus, God the Son, um, as God the Spirit leads God the Son into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil to endure a test. Would he trust God the Father? It was intense. It wasn't the only time he was tempted either, but it was an intense time. And the only reason you and I can even think about staying faithful and following Jesus is because he won 
the fight. He won the fight on our behalf. He never sinned. He was always faithful to the Father. And then he went on to die in our place as a sacrifice for our sins, for our unfaithfulness. He died and he rose. And when we put our faith in him, we are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. Our unfaithfulness in the past is forgiven. Our unfaithfulness today is forgiven. Our unfaithfulness in the future is forgiven. Why do I make a point of this? It's because while you and I are called to fight and we're called to be faithful to Jesus, our successes and our failures have no bearing on our standing with God. No bearing. Lean on his grace. He can't love you more than he does now because you succeed and he can't love you less than he does now because you fail. So, so far in the series, we've examined two forces that uh, make staying faithful to Jesus such a struggle. So we have looked at one of those forces, which is the devil, the devil's role in the fight. The devil's a deceiver, he's a liar, he's a destroyer, he sets out to destroy us. Uh, the second is the flesh, what the Bible calls the flesh, and the flesh can mean just our bodies, but we're talking about when it is used in particular context to mean our mental and bodily desires that have become disordered. And today we're looking at a third force that makes staying faithful to Jesus a struggle, and that force is what the Bible calls the world. And the world can simply mean the earth. Sometimes the authors of Scripture when they say the world, they're talking about the people of the earth. God so loved the world, meaning humanity. But sometimes the world refers to how society and culture is in opposition to God and to his ways. So that's the way that we're looking at it and thinking about it today. So John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, has a really helpful chart that he kind of weaves in and out of throughout his book. But he talks about how the devil comes with his deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires, the flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society. So society itself becomes, in, our, our disordered desires become embedded in the way that we do life together. Now this doesn't mean that everything in society is wrong or opposed to God. It means that every society has a way of taking certain disordered desires and instituting them into the culture, into the society, into the way that, that we think. So uh, theologian David Wells, who was one of my professors in seminary, he, de he defines the world, um, the disordered world, in this, in this way. The world is that system of values in any given age which has at its center our fallen human perspective. So that's from Genesis 3 on, where we... we we rebel against God's rule in our life. What happens? It displaces God and his truth from the world. Um, and the world, it's this world in which makes sin look normal and righteousness seems strange. It thus gives great plausibility, that means just kind of a sense of reasonableness that makes sense, plausibility, to what is morally wrong. And for that reason, makes what is wrong seem normal. So it displaces God's truth, 
it makes sin look normal. It makes what God calls us to, certain things that God calls us to, seem strange. It makes what is wrong seem normal. So we have the devil, we have the flesh, and today we're looking at the world. How do we remain faithful to following Jesus in spite of the pressures that we feel in the world? Pressure to cave, to give up on our faith. That's the question that we're asking today. Unfortunately, Jesus gives us a strategy for doing this, but it's very counterintuitive. It's not, I, don't, I really don't think it's what we would come up with because it's so, um, in many ways, makes things so difficult. Uh, but essentially, uh, we can see that it's the, it's, it is the right thing to do. So turn to John chapter 17, if you would. It's on page 1084 in the Bibles that are in the seat rack in front of you. And while you're turning to the passage, I just want to remind you that at Five Oaks, one of our core values is that, um, that the Bible, understanding it, it doesn't have to be a mystery, understanding what our place in God's story the story that God is weaving, it doesn't have to be a mystery. So we open our Bibles, we ask God to illuminate his word to us and then to empower us uh, to live it uh, day to day, every, everywhere we go. So um, before we pray, uh, or let's pray for God to do that, to illuminate his word to us, please pray the prayer on the screen along with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Holy Spirit, make us hungry for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the way of Jesus, the bread of heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as Christians, we live in a pressurized world. Uh, you might be familiar with what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12 too. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, those aspects of the world that are in opposition to, to God. J.B. Phillips uh, wrote a paraphrase back, I think in the 1950s, and he took that phrase and he said, he wrote it as, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. There's this pressure that we feel to conform to a mold that the world wants to, it wants to shape us into. Sometimes it's outright Coercion, uh, it's conform or be fired. It's conform or find another group of friends. It's conform or be canceled. I just heard a couple days ago on a podcast, uh, one, of the, one of the podcast hosts said he has a friend who he said got accidentally uh, put on the, his company's board of uh, equity and inclusion, or diversity, equity, and inclusion. So he said he was elected to it, and uh, he didn't run for it, he didn't ask for it, he was elected to it. And he got to the first meeting, and one of the people at the meeting said, as they were talking about some of their initiatives, said, you know there's gonna be some Christians that aren't gonna go along with this in our company. And uh, I've got a solution. Let's just fire them all. That can't happen, <laughs> all right. It, it, it can happen in more subtle ways, but it can't happen like that. There, there are actually protections uh, for, for Christians in, in our country. Uh, but the, and there was an HR person there and said, uh, you can't do that and we're not gonna do that, all right. So, uh, but it, it, there's protections aren't in every country. So there was a story from a few months ago, maybe there was more to it as time went on, but as the story was being told and 
um, written about uh, Australian football, one of their teams, a uh, brand new president of the team. He was installed as the president of the team, of the operations of the team, and the next day he was fired. And the reason was that some people, seeing that he had been installed as president of the team, went online at his church. They knew he went to a church, and they went online to the church where he goes, and they found a sermon from a few years ago that basically presented a historic, biblical, sexual ethic. And they complained, and within 24 hours, he was fired from his job. Now, I don't know how things work in Australia. I don't know, you know in this country that would probably end up in court. Uh, but that's what happened to him. So most coercion is really much more subtle. It's more like everyone in the room laughing and implying that, yeah, it would be great if we could fire them all. <laughs> and the one or two Christians in the room kind of wondering, do I raise my hand at this point and say I'm a Christian? Sometimes it's the pressure. The pressure is coercive. But most of the time, it's psychological pressure. Sometimes it's really completely on us. We have to own that. It's completely on us. It's our desire to fit in. No one is pressuring us sometimes. Our convictions and beliefs just feel less and less plausible. It's just like nobody thinks like we do, and we just feel the pressure to kind of shift our understanding of things because it's so different from the crowd, from everyone around us. But whether the pressure to cave is coercive or unintentional, the world is forming us. Intentionally, unintentionally, it's forming us. It's, it's shaping us uh, in just our day-to-day -day lives. So Jesus addresses this challenge that his followers will face in John. Um, he, he, he addresses it in John chapter 17. And it's the night of his betrayal. It's the night where he institutes the Lord's Supper. It's the night where he washes the feet of the disciples. And on that evening, he prays for his disciples. He's praying to God the Father. In the verses that we're looking at, chapter 17, beginning in verse 15, he's praying to God the Father. And so, and he's praying for his disciples. All right. And this is what he says. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So how do we stay faithful in following Jesus in a pressurized world, a world that is forming and shaping us, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally, but is shaping our perspectives, our actions, the way that we do life. So Jesus' plan is this, is for us to stay faithful by living in the world for the sake of the world while resisting the world. Living in the world for the sake of the world while resisting the world. So we're gonna break it down uh, into a couple of points. And we'll start with, they, they really interweave back and forth with each other, but, but here we go. Um, his plan is that we would live in the world for the sake of the world. Now, that's counterintuitive in the way that Jesus is often counterintuitive, because we might, um, we might think that Jesus would say, you're really going to be facing so much pressure, and a lot of you are going to give in to that pressure, and you're going to walk away from me because of it. 
sometimes in just you know little degree by another, but eventually you find yourself completely on a different path. And uh, so, you know, we would maybe come up with a plan for how can we retreat from the world and keep the world out, you know, so that we're 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 okay. Um, but he calls us to live in the world for the sake of the world, not just live in the world, but live in the world for the sake of the world. And you might ask, well, is there any really any other way to do it? Because after all, you you have to make a living, right? And nobody can live a completely self-sustaining life. The disciples couldn't like go off the Roman grid completely. All right, so you might ask that question. But what we're talking about here is really a basic orientation. We're not talking about like if, if we were to, if Jesus said retreat, he wouldn't have meant, you know, create your own uh, electric grid and create all these things, you know, in the future, just stay away, don't buy things from anybody, <clears throat> grow all your own food. No, it would have been a matter of degree and an orientation. And, and you've seen this in life. Uh, for example, you have um, the Amish, for example, is one group. It's basically trying to live off the grid as much as possible. So back in early 90s, uh, there was, uh, for my birthday, uh, Lois had gathered some friends and we were going to go to an Amish home uh, for where they, you pay to go to their house, they make you a meal, they give you a tour, they talk about their way of life, they answer any questions that you have, that kind of thing. I wound up not being able to go because I wound up having to go to a, a funeral in another state. Uh, but but they, they all went. Now the interesting thing about all the arrangements for this, if things change, like letting them know that I wasn't going to be able to make it, uh, they don't, they, they didn't have internet, they didn't have, I don't know if there was internet in the early 90s, was there? I can't remember. But they didn't have internet, they don't have internet, they don't have telephones, uh, all that sort of thing. So when you sign up for this thing, they give you their neighbor's telephone number. And if you need to talk to them, you call the neighbor and set up a time to talk to them and they come over to their neighbor's house and they use their neighbor's phone. All right, so that's, that's retreating, right? And, but recognizing, can't retreat completely. I'm not gonna own a phone, but I'll let you own a phone. You know, I'll let it corrupt you, that kind of a thing. <laughs> so, and there's, I don't, I'm not making fun of the, I, 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 the, there, there are so many positive things, okay? But from a Christian perspective, okay, if, if you're trying to pull back to keep corruption, that's what I'm talking about. When I was in college, we, I, I went to Northwestern here in uh, St. Paul and we went for a spring break down to my hometown of Miami and on our way there, a van full of guys and on our way down there, we decided to save some money by swinging by a school where one of the people in our van had a friend there and so we slept like on the floor in that friend's room. The, the school happened to be a very famous fundamentalist, Christian fundamentalist school. And so we went to a basketball game that night. We got there and we ate and, hey, let's go to the basketball game. And we watched the basketball game. And, and I said something like, because it was an intramural game, I said, well, how's your basketball team? It's a university with, I think, 5,000 students at the time. How's your basketball team? How do you guys do, you know, competing? And he goes, we, we don't have one. We used to compete against other schools. But when they would come here, a lot of times they used really bad words. So we stopped doing it. Okay, so that's not Amish type of separation. That's, that's uh, Christian fundamentalism and trying to keep the world out. It's a, it's a, it's a posture 
a basic posture of retreat. And in Jesus' day, you had groups like that as well. You had the Essenes who lived, you know, far away, off the grid, from everything. Uh, how did they make it? You know, how did they get food and all that? Because they wouldn't, they wouldn't do business with even their fellow Jews because they were all corrupted. Well, there was a second order of Essenes, not quite as committed, but willing to sacrifice by living in the towns and doing business and interacting and then bringing, you know, for the needs of the more monkish uh, Essenes. And so, you know, more like, okay, so the Essenes were more like the Amish in our day, and the, um, then you had the Pharisees who wouldn't eat with certain people and kind of, you know, Jesus is constantly dealing with this, this problem. And uh, they are very separatist and everything. They were more like Christian fundamentalists, uh, even today. So Jesus' way, the way of discipleship in Jesus wasn't the way of the Essenes or the Pharisees of his day, uh, the way of separation. His way was a way of engagement. You go into the arena of testing and struggle, but you do it with single focused purpose. You do it with a missional purpose. You are in the world for the sake of the world. So you and I are sent. Every single, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are sent. You're called to live, I'm called to live on a mission. I'm on a mission. So every week, as our last movement of our worship service. It's meant to shape and form us. Uh, just like we're gonna go out into the world, we're gonna be shaped, it's gonna be trying to shape and form us. When we gather, we go through movements that are shaping and forming us. Right now we're in the listening movement. We're listening to the word of God. It's, it's shaping and form us, forming us, but so are the prayers that we pray. They're shaping and forming us. They're, they're, strategically placed in particular place. The songs we sing fit the movement that we're in. It's planned in that way to shape and form us. So our last movement um, is a benediction. And at the very end, the final benediction every week is, I, is, is whoever's preaching says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you are sent. You are sent. Not in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Get back here as quickly as you can. <laughs> Where it's safe. That's not, the, because that's not how Jesus, Jesus spoke. We're to be in the world for the sake of the world. We are commissioned. You are commissioned. As disciples, you go into the world to make more disciples. You have a purpose in the world. In the arena of testing, live out your purpose. All right, so look again at the text. Verse 17, notice the word sanctify, which basically means to make holy, all right? To make holy. They are not, uh, verse 17, uh, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I'm sorry. I think I want to look at verse. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. 
For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So three times it talks about sanctification. Right in the middle of that, it talks about being sent into the world. All right, so one of those words, to be made holy, sounds you know, more like separated, and, and the other one is get into the world, but they're really talking about the same thing. That, that word sanctified to make holy, it's a very, very rich word. I'm not going to be able to cover all the ways that it's used in, in the scripture, um, but, uh, but we'll, we'll look at one way. To sanctify, basically, uh, in this kind of context, means to commission and dedicate for a holy purpose. To commission and dedicate for a holy purpose. Now, sometimes it means cleanse, but it's not, not meaning cleansing here because Jesus sanctifies himself. He doesn't need cleansing, right? But it's, it's kind of a single-focused dedication. This is what I'm going to do. I'm sanctifying myself for this, for this purpose. So, for example, in the Old Testament, a bowl would be sanctified if it was going to be used in the temple. It would be literally sanctified. They, 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 would, they would pray over it to, to get it ready to, to be used in a very particular... It would be commissioned. The bowl would be commissioned, dedicated to be used in the temple. To be used completely, not for in the cupboard, not to eat out of, but to be used in the temple exclusively. It's, it's a holy bowl. You have bowls and other instruments that are holy. They're set aside, set apart for the temple, dedicated to God, dedicated to his use. In this context, sanctified is about being dedicated for God's missional purposes. That's why he says he has, he's on mission, he sanctified himself, and they are being sanctified and being sent into the world in verse 18. Um, it feels out of place, but it's not. It's exactly what it's talking about. Sanctify them as you have sent me into the world. I send them into the world and I sanctify myself. All right, so here's an example of, that might help uh, a little bit with understanding this. Uh, maybe you have a friend or maybe I'm describing you, a serious ma marathon runner. Not the kind that runs a marathon hoping to survive, but the kind that runs a marathon to make a certain time. I mean, really serious runner that trains hard and gets really good times, all right? So what does that person, um, what does a person like this do? They wholly dedicate themselves to that task, to that goal. Um, it means they not only train like just in their spare time, you know, if they have time. Their whole life is arranged around that goal. They sanctify themselves in that sense. They sanctify themselves to, to that goal, to run that race. Now, do they do anything else? And we're talking about someone like you or a friend, not a professional marathoner, not an Olympian, a serious marathoner. So do they do anything else? Do they go out with friends? Do they take time for their family? Do they go to a movie? Do they take an afternoon and go on the beach? You know, that kind of thing. Yes, 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 yes. They do whatever it is. They, they take time off and they take time with people and they go to work and all those things. But all those things are not going to add up to the point where it takes time away or focus away from working on that goal. If they are really dedicated, they are not going to so do so many things that they lose sight of their goal. They're serious about this and they're going after their goal. They have an overarching purpose and they're not going to be deterred by anything. So you see what Jesus is saying? He's calling on God the Father to sanctify his disciples for mission, to, 
dedicate and commission his disciples for mission. Not just any mission. They're being called to share in Jesus's mission. It's Jesus's mission. Not, not, and, and not just um, you know, share in his mission, but they're being sent into the world like he was sent into the world for the sake of the world. So they'll go to work. Um, they'll go on a vacation. Christians, disciples, go on a vacation, go fishing, maybe play a little pickleball, uh, run, run uh, you know, walk the 10,000 steps, whatever they do for health or just for fun. But those things are never going to deter them from their mission that they're sharing with Jesus. They're sanct they've been sanctified for, all right? They will be singularly focused on Christ's mission in their lives. Now, I want to make two clarifications here. First, the mission isn't about making converts. It's a big mis misunderstanding a lot of people have. Jesus is not about making converts. He doesn't call us to make converts. He doesn't even call us to evangelize. We aren't sanctified to make converts. It's about discipleship. It's about connecting people to Jesus, to a lifelong, eternal relationship with Jesus. Wherever people are at, it's about making disciples. So the mission is about uh, making disciples, making more disciples, which is being evangelistic. There is a conversion process that happens in there, but it's about connecting people to Jesus. It's not about just praying a prayer or identifying or getting baptized or something like that. It's, it's a it's about being connected to Jesus and then growing and deepening disciples who are following Jesus. That's what the mission is. It's one thing. It's not two things. It's not evangelism and discipleship. It's discipleship. Evangelism is a subset of discipleship. That's the bigger picture. The second thing I want to say, another clarification, is discipleship is a subset of the call to glorify God. That's, that's even a higher call. Jesus gets to this in this upper room when he's with the disciples. He eventually gets to this. We're not going to look at that today. But there is this higher calling. Now, it's important to understand that for this reason. Because when you go to work or school as a follower of Jesus who is making disciples, it's not just about making disciples. All right, a lot of Christians get it in their mind that I go to work so that, you know, besides putting a roof over my head and providing for my family and everything like that. But when I think missionally, it's so, well, that, that's a mission field. There are people there who don't know Jesus. And so I, I go there with, and that is my purpose. Or I make money for why? So I can give a portion of that money to support missions and my church and all that sort of thing. Now, all those things are good. They're part of it, but there's an overarching that's really important. And that is that we're there to glorify God, not just by making disciples, but by doing our work well <laughs> in a way that glorifies God. Doing our work well. We're going to have a whole series on this coming up, so I'm not going to go any more into that. So let's get back to what we're talking about you know, in all of this. How do we stay faithful in this pressurized world that's trying to form us intentionally, unintentionally, trying to mold us in ways that take us on paths, forms us in a way that doesn't reflect God's path or the image of Christ. How do we do that? By being in the world, 
Jesus says, be in the world for the sake of the world. It's counterintuitive, but it really makes sense. You know when you get focused on something, how it impacts everything. So you just have to think about it for a minute and you see, oh, yeah, this makes perfect sense. How else do we stay faithful in a pressurized world? According to this passage, this is the plan. Resist the world. Resist the world. Now remember, it's not just about resisting the world. Uh, it's, it's not that we become separatists from the world in order to resist. We're not Amish. We're not Essenes. We're not Pharisees. We're not Christian fundamentalists. Jesus' plan is for us to stay faithful by living in the world for the sake of the world while at the same time resisting the world. All right, this is going back to the original thing that I said. So let's go back to our friend, or you, who's a serious, really serious marathon runner. This person is gonna be singularly focused. Doesn't mean they're not gonna chill, not gonna play, they're not gonna spend time with family, they're not gonna go to work, do their work well, all those kinds of things, doesn't mean that. But if they're serious and they are focused, there's a lot they won't do. There's just a lot they won't do. There are certain things they're not gonna eat. There's certain things that they are gonna eat. Uh, there's certain parties they're not gonna go to because the party goes too late and they know that they have to get their sleep. Um, there's activities they're going to forego because like I'm a serious marathoner, I'm not gonna go play pickleball with my friends because I might twist my ankle or something like that and it'll ruin my race for me, that kind of a thing. So you get what I mean. There are things that they are not going to do. They'll prioritize their workouts too. That's the other thing. In other words, there's going to be activities and events and stuff that they would normally do that they're going to miss, on, miss, miss out on because they can't do everything. Time constraints. And there are series on Netflix that they would love. <laughs> their friends are telling them about. And they're, while they're training, there's, there's just series after series is piling up and they're never going to get to it. <laughs> They're never going to get to it because when they're done with that race, they're training for the next race. Okay, so they're going to forego all kinds of things. They're going to go on vacation, yes, but they're going to tell their family, you guys sleep in. While you guys sleeping in, I'm going to be running. All right, so that's that kind of focus. It's not all fun and games, even on vacation. It's the same with the follower of Jesus. There are activities that we're going to forego even if everyone... Um, Everyone that we know is doing them if those activities don't glorify Jesus. Because our, our goal is to glorify Jesus and make disciples. So there's going to be certain things that we say that everybody else is doing it, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And let me give you a couple of examples of how um, this is actually... Um, it's part of what it means to resist the world. But I, before I, I move on with the examples, uh, mostly resisting, it's not about I don't do this and I don't do this. Most of the resisting is to not think like the world. Okay, it, it kind of goes, it, it's not about like all these rules. Most of it is about not thinking like the world. The world thinks in a particular way. Not all of it is bad, but there's aspects of it that are pulling us into thinking in a way that doesn't reflect Christ's way. And so the resistance is not just about foregoing certain activities that don't glorify Christ, um, but not, part of the resistance is not becoming like the world by thinking like the world. I'll give you a couple of examples. So the world, for example, 
basically, not everyone, but basically, this is all there is, all right? The physical world that we see, this is all there is. There may be something more, but you can't count on it, so don't build your life around it. Don't sacrifice for it. That would be, I mean, you might end up really disappointed in the end if you do that. And so, you know, you can give lip service to the world to come. You can give lip service to a God that, that exists, but really live like this is all there is. And as Christians, we can fall into this. Where we look inside and we go at a certain point, yeah, I think I'm just giving lip service to the idea that there is a God. And that, that Jesus said these things, but really I'm living as if this is all there is. But Jesus says, live in light of eternity and in light of the coming new creation and in light of God's rule, this is kingdom, over everything. Live like that. Next slide. Uh, the world. Myself, that is my heart, my desires, determines, myself determines my identity, my destiny, my ethics, how I see things right and wrong. I am the determiner of those things. And Jesus says, no, let God determine your identity and your destiny, your destiny and your, your ethics. In fact, die to yourself. Um, Jesus said we have to die to ourself. And that's what he's saying in this passage. He says, sanctify them by your truth, by the truth. Your word is truth. That's what's shaping our perspective. Again, a couple of clarifying ideas that I think are really important because this resisting, um, a lot of misunderstandings about what this means uh, in our world. Um, now, getting down to the nitty-gritty day-to-day level, we are going to oftentimes disagree with each other, but we need to go in with a basic orientation that we share, um, that Jesus gave us. So here's the first clarification. Christians are called to treat people that are not Christians with respect and with honor. We don't get a pass on that because we're in a hot political fight or we're having a great debate with someone um, and other people are listening and we wanna own this person, we wanna beat this person. Uh, Peter put it this way, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone, meaning non-Christians, who ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. That's not the only verse that speaks about this. Second, Christians are called to love those who oppose them and hate them. Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Resist the world doesn't mean I have to beat down the world. It doesn't mean I can, I can take advantage of people, I can fight dirty, or I can even just, just, just try to make them look stupid. Uh, we don't get a pass on these things. Jesus didn't make exceptions. You look at his whole life, just didn't make exceptions on these things. So Jesus' plan is for us to stay faithful by living in the world for the sake of the world while resisting the world. That's the plan. That's the plan for this pressurized world. Live in the world. Live on mission for that world, for the sake of the world. Resist the world shaping you into its mold. Instead, be formed by Christ.
And as part of our forming, every week we listen to the word and then we respond to God's word. And we begin our response here. And so I invite you to take out communion, the elements, and we remember what else Jesus said on that night when he gathered his disciples. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's what he sanctified himself for. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you so love the world. And because you so love the world, we, if we put our faith in you, we can live reconciled to you. Our unfaithfulness, our brokenness, because it gets in the way of, of living fully for you, is forgiven. And we serve you, and we seek you, and we seek your way, not so that you will love us more, but it's because you love us and because we are growing in deeper and deeper love for you and for our world. Form us and shape us. Help us to humbly go forward, seeking to be shaped by your word and understanding what you're calling us to in our day-to-day -day lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.